Thank you, Father, for song that is used to put words in our hearts that we need to declare to you, even at times when we don't understand what we need to be singing and saying. And so, Father, we thank you for reminders, even as we have sung this morning, how vast and measureless the flood of mercy we have received from you, an unrestrained flood, the penalty paid in full through the slain spotless lamb, a priceless gift granted to us, received by grace through faith, so that now we stand in robes of righteousness, standing in Jesus' name. It's it's singing songs like that, hymns like that, that remind us that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That all honor and exaltation and delight goes to you. And so, Father, as we worship this morning, might that song and what else we have sung and what else we have prayed and what else we have read resonate in our hearts to drive us to you, to give glory to you, to delight in you. And Father, would you take this word that we're about to hear? We've read it. Now we want to think about it more deeply. Would you give me clarity and accuracy as I administer this word? Woe to me. If I handle it incorrectly, unwisely, foolishly, tritely. And woe to us if we do not hear with the gravity with which this word intends to be impressed on our hearts. And so, Father, would you be pleased to bring transformation to us. And even that that transformation would begin in delight. And the astounding work that you have done for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mom always said, never say never. And it's always bad to say always. I'm going to go out on a limb. And I'm going to break mom's rule. And give a generalization that I believe applies to all believers everywhere. No one is satisfied with his prayer life. None of us will say, I pray enough. I'm content with where my prayer life is. God always gets my best in prayer. Mom's rule notwithstanding, I think that applies to all of us. There are a lot of reasons why we don't pray enough. We might be apathetic or lazy. We might be entrapped by a sense of busyness and a variety of distractions. You're praying for something and something else comes flying through your head and now you're, you're just gone away from the prayer and focused on this other thing. Lack of discipline, lack of habit. Some of us have just never cultivated, never gotten started in the practice of 
prayer in our lives and some of us just don't get started day by day. Sin, obviously, will keep us from prayer as well. But it may also be that sometimes we don't pray simply because we don't know what to pray. What do you say in prayer? What should you ask in prayer? We, we know we should pray. We just don't know where to start. And the whole practice at times seems to be overwhelming. You know, I need a clicker, guys. There it is. You know, if you look, at, if you look where you're supposed to look, these things will show up. <laughs> Uh, as I was saying, one of our goals for this year has been to stimulate one another to excel still more in loving, caring for one another. We do care for each other at Grace Bible Church in Granbury. But as long as God has us on this earth, we can continue to grow in that care. We looked at that principle a few weeks ago out of First Thessalonians 4. And I submit to you that one of the ways that we can care well for one another, that we can excel still more in building each other up and ministering to one another is by faithfully praying with one another and for one another. When we have individual trials and troubles, we cannot change those circumstances. We hear of our brother and sister going through an immense grief. We can't take that away. We can't substitute ourselves into their position to alleviate their pain. But we can minister to them through prayer with them. And we can minister to them through prayer for them. We care for one another. We love one another by being with each other. By praying for each other. And when we don't know what to pray for one another... We can turn to a variety of prayers in the scriptures to learn what's what's essential in prayer, what's necessary in prayer, what should we be praying. And this is what we're going to do this morning, turning to Paul's prayer to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 as a model for us about how to pray and what to pray. And what Paul will tell us in this passage is this, excel still more in loving the church body by praying for one another. Love the church body by praying for one another. And he will give us, after giving some background to the practice of prayer, and then um, some instruction about prayer, he'll give us at least four requests to pray. So we're going to look first at some background, some context, and then consider these four requests that Paul gives us. Let's consider first of all, whoops, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. Anyway, there you got the whole outline in front of you. <laughs> the reason for Paul's prayer, and that is God's sovereignty. Notice what he says, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and for your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks. For this reason. For which reason? He has spent verses 3 through 14 expounding on God's grace and salvation. Verses 3 to 6, he's talked about 
the Father's work in salvation, verses 7 to 12. He's talked about the Son's work in salvation, verses 13 and 14. He's talked about the Spirit's work in salvation. And all of these things, he says, are a reminder of God's sovereignty in bringing us to salvation. And because of this, for, for that reason, for God's grace towards the Ephesians, he is making intercession for them. In fact, he, he says not just on the basis of the salvation that God has provided for, for them in verses 3 through 14, but how that salvation is being worked in their lives. Notice what else he says. For this reason, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. So you have faith. So you, the Ephesian church, there is among you and in you pervading the Ephesian church faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul knew the Ephesian church just about better than any other church. He had spent three years in their presence with them. So when he received reports while he was in prison in Rome, from which he was writing this letter, about the continuance of their faith in Christ, he was, he was just overjoyed. The time he had spent with them, building the gospel into them, was not wasted. They were progressing and continuing in the walk and life of faith. So he's, he's delighted in their continued obedience and in their adherence to Jesus Christ. And just remember the Ephesian culture in which they were living, there were astounding, an astounding number of temptations to lead believers away from Christ. And Paul here is thankful that they've continued. They have persevered. They have continued their walk and you might think well of course they did isn't that i mean they're believers and won't they continue and even while paul sends that commendation that's not the final word on the ephesian church the final word on the ephesian church comes from christ himself in revelation 2 i have this against you that you have left your first love so after Paul had built into them, he discipled them, he trained them, he'd been with them for, for three years, and then they had continued in that. But some point after that, between Paul's death and John's death, the church had wandered away from love of Christ. At this moment, and that's a, that's a sober warning for us, no matter how well we are doing, no matter how well we are progressing, no matter how much faith we see in the body, there's always a temptation, there's always a pull, there's always an attraction that comes from the world and the flesh that will draw us away. We need to be attentive to that. At this point, though, as Paul writes from Rome, there's reason for joy as he sees their progress of faith. And just an aside, don't discount how your progress in the faith is an encouragement to others. It's not just about you when you're faithful. Now, obviously, when you're faithful to Christ, you reap the benefits and the, the, the positive blessings that come from obedience to Him. But, but it's also about more than just you. That others watch you and they watch you persevere in particular trials, in particular difficulties, in particularly harsh circumstances, and they gain encouragement to persevere themselves in that. That's one of the reasons we share the testimonies that we do on membership day and, and baptism days. 
Because they're a stimulant to us to walk with Christ. Not only did Paul hear about their continuance with Christ, though, but notice what else. He had heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, end of verse 15, your love for all the saints. So the love of Christ overflowed into a love of the body, that they cared for one another. In a culture that was overrun by self-indulgence, the Ephesians reflected transformation of salvation by their care for one another. This, This is exactly what Jesus calls all his disciples to. We've alluded to this, I don't know how many times over the years. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's John 13. So Jesus commanded, and that's exactly what the Ephesians were doing. And so we have two things that are going on in verse 15. Paul is thankful for their progress in faith in Christ. And Paul is thankful for progress of sanctification in the way they are loving one another. Those two clauses effectively fulfill the calling of Christ. Mark chapter 12. Jesus said, the foremost commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that's exactly what they'd done. They loved Christ, and they'd loved the church, Christ's people. But in even recognizing their progress of faith, Paul is not so much recognizing what they have accomplished, but what Christ and God have accomplished in them. As Paul thinks about the Ephesian believers in Ephesus, he recognizes the grace of God's sovereignty in their lives, and he's compelled to pray for them. Remember, for this reason, for the reason of the salvation that has come to us by God's sovereign grace. And that has been worked out in your lives, but Paul is, Paul is recognizing it's his work that is being worked out in their lives. And as he thinks about the sovereign salvation of God being worked out in the Ephesians, here's what's remarkable. He is compelled to pray for them. Now we hear of people being converted and then we see people growing in the faith and we think, hey, they're all good. Check them off my prayer list. Paul says, no, no, no. Pray for them because they're in Christ and because they're doing well. Don't stop. We should be compelled to continue to pray. Don't stop praying just because someone appears to be doing well. It's because of the progress of faith. It's because of the maturity. It's because of the love that he prays still more. Now, he doesn't use those words, but that's the intention. He keeps praying. Now, some are going to ask, well, listen, Terry, the first half of this chapter, a little bit more, is all about God's sovereignty and salvation, right? So, verse 4, He chose us. He predestined us, verse 5. He brought us to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. 
It's all about Him. It's all about what He's done. It's all His work. And if God is that sovereign, why should we pray? We pray because we recognize in prayer, we can't, He must. We recognize our absolute emptiness and our complete need and reliance on Him. In fact, every prayer is a recognition of God's sovereignty and our dependence on Him. When we pray, we always say, Will you? And then fill in the blank. He is sovereign. And we pray. I fear that too often we do ministry without conscious dependence on God. And that is often reflected in our prayerlessness. And Paul's opening statement in this prayer is a reminder that God is sovereign. I am not. I am in, he is independent and I am dependent. He is rich. I am poor. He is inherently righteous. And I am dependently declared righteous. He is the mover. We are the moved. We need Him. He is sovereign. And we pray. The second thing I want you to notice, verse 16, is the content of Paul's prayer. And that is gratitude. The content of Paul's prayer, that is gratitude. As he prays, verse 16, he says he does not cease giving thanks. In other words, he's always perpetually expressing gratitude. This word thanksgiving or thankfulness reflects the outward expression, says one writer, in word or deed of the interior sentiment of gratitude for a favor received. I get something and I attribute appropriate response to the one who is the giver. I've gotten a grace and I give thanks. I don't just, I don't just assume that It's right that I receive it, but I give thanks. Now notice as Paul prays with gratitude for whom he is thankful. I do not give cease giving thanks for you. He is thankful for the Ephesians. Paul sees their progress of faith as a gift of grace to him. So as they're progressing and as they're maturing, he's saying that's... That's part of God's grace gift to me. But notice also, not just for whom he is thankful, but notice to whom he is thankful. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly, but he is saying, I am making mention of you. That word mention is actually the word of remembrance. I'm remembering you in my prayers. Prayers to whom? Prayers to God. So he's thankful for them, but he doesn't thank them. He thanks God for his work in them. So here are two questions for us. One, can we be intentional in looking for evidence of God's grace in others' lives? Are we attentive to what God is doing and working in the lives of other believers Around us, are, are we watching for the progress of others? And do we even express gratitude toward God for them and, and affirm them? Now, Paul tells them, I'm praying for you with gratitude for your progress of faith. Do we, do we affirm those who are around us and we see faith in them cultivated? 
Are we looking for that? Are we grateful for it? And are we affirming them? And then second question. Can we be intentional in cultivating grateful hearts for what God is doing in others? It's typical to pray for other people. And it's typical to pray to God for gratitude in our lives. But can we pray with gratitude for God's work in the lives of others as well? Can we pray with gratitude for the progress of faith in other churches, in other places, recognizing that this also is God's work? I don't know about you, but even at Thanksgiving, I sometimes have a hard time being grateful. I think it's an American thing. I think it's a sinner thing. Here are three three suggestions. This isn't in the text. These are just things... I've found to be helpful over the years to stimulate me and provoke me to gratitude. So just three suggestions, things you might do. I could give you a lot longer list than this, but here are just three things. How can you cultivate gratitude? Keep a journal with you. One, keep a journal with you. And every day, write down two or three reasons for gratitude. Now, it's easy to say, God, thank you for this three-inch thick, T-bone steak, grilled perfectly medium rare, leaning towards rare. Now you know how I like my steaks, don't you? (laughs) Okay, that's fine. But can we particularly focus our gratitude on people that we see growing in Christ? And as you're making your way through life and you're running across people and you're getting texts, you're getting emails, you're making phone calls, you're running into people at the store. Can you just write down reasons of gratitude that you see in them and then pray the list every day? So you've got a list, two or three things. This afternoon, you'll write down two or three things and tomorrow you'll write down two or three things. Tuesday, you write down two or three things. You get to the end of the week and you've got 15 or 20 things that you're praying through with gratitude. What's that going to do to your heart? Oh, it's going to stimulate you to gratitude. Second suggestion, periodically spend a day only praying prayers of gratitude. So that day, the only thing you do is you pray prayers of gratitude. So you take the, you take the burdens, you take the needs, and you turn them into opportunities for thankfulness. God, thank you that I know I can be confident that even while James and Glenda are suffering immensely right now, I know that you care for them as a shepherd and you will be with them. And we do not need fear for them. They have you as their comforter. And so you take a request and you turn it into gratitude. And third thing you might do, every time you speak to someone or think of someone, pray gratefully for What God is doing in that person. So just spontaneously through the day. You've got a full day ahead, right? All these people in the room giving gratitude as you're walking around shaking hands. But shouldn't that be the tenor of our lives? God, thank you for what you're doing. That's the content. Excuse me, context of Paul's prayer. Now let's look thirdly at the content of Paul's prayer. Verses 17 to 19. Here are... Four requests that you can pray that apply to every person who believes in Jesus Christ. And these 
these requests are all wrapped around the idea of knowledge. We need to know something. And so as we pray for one another, we're praying that we might know something. Notice what he says, verse 17. Um, I pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom, that's a form of knowledge, of revelation, that's a form of knowledge, in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened and that you will know. So knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. We need to know something so that our minds and our hearts are transformed. What do we need to know? Pray first of all. That they might grow in the knowledge and fellowship of God. This is verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. And I think there he's talking about the Holy Spirit who grants wisdom. Not not a, a spirit like an inner spirit in yourself. But that they would be granted the Holy Spirit who imparts knowledge, who gives wisdom... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and of revelation, this is the Spirit of God that grants to us revelation, understanding, in the knowledge of Him. The goal of the Spirit leading us is to lead us into a knowledge and intimacy with God. And the word knowledge here is referring to a full, a complete, a deep, a real knowledge He's asking that there would be a full understanding of God's revelation to us of himself. Just an aside, the goal of the gospel is to bring us into fellowship with God. The the goal of the gospel, the ultimate goal of the gospel is not forgiveness of sin. The goal of the gospel is not escape from hell. That's part of it, but that's not ultimate. What's ultimate in the gospel is to get us to God so that we have fellowship with him. This is what this is what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14. So he's telling the disciples, I'm about to leave you, but don't worry, I'm going to come back. And he says, if I go, verse 3, John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to what's the next word? Myself, to a person, not a place. That where I am, there you may be also. It's not about the place, it's about the person. And so here in Paul's prayer, he is affirming this same thing, that we would know the fullness of fellowship with God. And then along with knowing God, he says in verse 18 at the beginning, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And so here, referring to our heart and our eyes, he's referring to the inner man and our desires and the things that are going on internally to us. He's he's asking that inside of us we would be receptive to the Spirit's work and that we would be drawn and compelled and moved towards God. Says D.A. Carson, We must have our spiritual faculties attuned to receive what God reveals by His Spirit. So I need my my heart awakened. I need my heart enlightened. And only the Spirit can do that. And I need that to happen so that I can have fellowship with Christ. What the church needs 
What you need, what I need, is more fellowship with God. More delight in Him. The world says, know yourself. And the Bible says, know God and know fellowship with Him. And we know Him in part by understanding our place with Him and what He has done in bringing us into fellowship with Him. That's really the first part of this chapter, right? Paul wants us to understand the depth of our salvation, the the astounding grace in which God has brought us into salvation. And that's the first step to knowing Him. Cultivate your fellowship with Him that I may know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings and being conformed to Him, Christ, my Savior. That I may know Him. It's about Him. The second thing He wants us to know as we pray for one another is that we might grow in the knowledge of salvation's hope. That we might grow in the knowledge of salvation's hope. Pray for people to know confidently salvation's hope. Middle of verse 18. He wants the eyes of their heart to be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. This is the confidence that comes from being called to salvation by God. That word calling, of course, is the work that God did in bringing us to salvation. He referenced that at the beginning of this section, verse 4. He chose us in Him. He called us in Him that we, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He's called us. He's chosen us. He's brought us to Him. And that should instill in us, Paul says, a hope, an absolute confidence in our victory and our position in Christ. This hope that we have in Jesus Christ is the opposite of despair. It is what one commentator has called massively optimistic. We're massively optimistic because sin has finally been eradicated. Death is not our victor. And we are safe and secure in Christ. How many believers do you see around you who are unrighteously distraught and despairing. I'm I'm not talking about sorrowing. There's an appropriate place for grief. But I'm talking about an unrighteous despair, an unholy discouragement. And this is how you can pray for them. That they would perceive the reality of God's hopeful calling, the reality of God's sovereign control and eternity with Him, even in harsh circumstances. Brothers and sisters, when we are unrighteously despairing and hopeless, it gives evidence that we are listening to the world and not to our scriptures. Said H.L. Mencken a century ago, hope is the pathological belief in the occurrence of the impossible. It can't happen. He was an atheist. Freud, after the death of his daughter, said, I do not know what more there is to say. It is such a paralyzing event which can stir no afterthoughts when one is not a believer. 
He wasn't a believer. He recognized he wasn't a believer and he realized he was hopeless. Said H.G. Wells, here I am at 65, still searching for peace, but a dignified peace is but an empty dream. And I dare say that there are too many believers in too many places that have been provoked by such kind of ungodly thinking and become hopeless and despairing. Here's a better definition of hope. Stuart Scott says this, Hope is an effectual confidence in who God is and an eager anticipation of God's promise to bring us to Himself even in the face of very difficult circumstance. I can trust Him when life is hard. He'll keep His promise. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.13, we grieve but not as those with no hope. There's a place for grieving and there's a place for sorrowing. There's a place for longing and there's a place for saying this world is broken. There's a place for weeping. But we do not weep as if there is no hope. Our hope is that God will always do what He says and we will never be overwhelmed. In 1942, African missionary E. Stanley Jones wrote this, The early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. They saw not merely the ruin, but the resource for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. And on that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve and fatalism, to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match. This is our prayer for one another. And let me just say, if you are not a Christian this morning, you don't have this hope. You're not in this place. This verse does not apply to you. You do not have wisdom. You have not had revelation. Your heart has not been enlightened. You are hopeless without the calling of God in your life. Your condition, whether you know it or not, is desperate. And our job is not only to pray for ourselves, to know confidence and hope, but our prayer, our, our, our responsibility is to declare to you the means by which you can have hope. And the means, means by which you can have hope is to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, that He will redeem you from sin, He will remove death from your life, and He will bring you into His glorious home to be with Him. That's verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Not just the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us, but redemption, redeemed, transformation, new life, new place, new fellowship. Brother and sister, friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I compel you, you are hopeless in this world without Christ. All you have to do is turn to Him in faith and say, I can't, I need you. Would you forgive me and would you instill hope in me? And he will do just that. So pray for one another to know knowledge and fellowship of God. Pray to know 
the hope of salvation. Thirdly, pray to know the knowledge of salvation's riches. Notice verse 18. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So the inheritance, the treasure, the heritage is in the saints. The inheritance is the saints, are the saints. The treasure is what God has made us. Now, we get to heaven, are there going to be treasures evermore? Absolutely. Is that the goal? No. The goal is the fellowship and the inheritance of our fellowship with Him. And Paul's saying here, we need to know the treasure of what we have been made as the inheritance of Christ and being made sons of God. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 6, that there's a gift that has been given in heaven. And the gift is from the Father to the Son. And what does the Father give the Son? The Son who has everything at His disposal that lacks nothing, what does the Father give Him? John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What's the love gift from the Father to the Son? A redeemed people who will forever glorify and honor Him. We're the inheritance that the Son receives as a love gift from the Father. You need to know the riches of that position and the riches of that treasure. That means that As D.A. Carson again has said, God's valuation of His people is established by His valuation of Christ. He delights in you as He delights in Christ. Because all of Christ's righteousness, perfect, unblemished, has been imputed and granted to you who believe. And we are His. What we need is not a better self-image. What we need is a better Christ image. We're His. We're His riches. We're His inheritance. The third thing to pray is that they might grow in the knowledge of salvation's power. You have been given the keys, sorry Alan, not to a Corvette, but to the finest, I don't know, Maserati, whatever's on the road, you've been given the finest keys to that in your salvation. Paul wants us to know the power of salvation. Verse 19, notice all the different ways that he refers to God's power. What are... What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working, that's a word for power, of the strength 
of His might. The word power refers to the enablement of God. That's His, that's his potential power. It's what He's able to do. Imagine a massive bulldozer. Regine and I went to the stock show the other night and we're walking through the exhibit area and it's like, well, I need one of them and I need one of them and I really don't, but that was my covetousness coming out. And you just see those massive machines and you go, wow, what could that do? That's the power of God. It's the bulldozer rest, if you will. Then, then we see the working of God. That's God's power in action. It's evidenced when we see hydraulics working and digging a hole like that's out there in like five minutes and knocking a tree over and you just go, wow, look at that. How did it do that? That's so cool. And his strength, that's God's inherent possessed power, his supernatural power. And we look, that's, that's looking at the bulldozer. That's what Regine and I were doing on Friday night, looking at that bulldozer and just saying, just imagine what that could do. And the might, the supremacy of his power, able to overcome any resistance. You fire that baby up and you just hear it, don't you? Here it comes. Watch out. And all of these attributes, Paul says, verse 19, notice this, are surpassingly great. They're far beyond anything else. These words are used by Paul to say in as many ways as possible, you cannot stop God. He's unstoppable. We're to know the sufficiency of his power. And then he's going to take an excursus that we're not going to look at this morning in verses 20 to 23 to talk about the superiority of Christ's power. And what I want you to notice in this passage, though, is that the power of Christ is directed towards the salvation and sanctification of God's people. And there is nothing that can stop it. A weak Christian is a weak Christian because they have never availed themselves of this power of God. They've never reckoned what God can do. Do you know the power of God's grace that brought you out of sin? Do you know the power that brought you out of sin is the same power that strengthens you to live day by day in the Christian life? What God did to move you from death to life, from sin to salvation, is the same power that equips you to say no to sin every day of your life. And it's available And it's surpassingly great. And if you're stuck today, you don't have to be. And if you see others around you who are stuck, this is what you pray. God, would you help them to know the power that is available to them to walk with you. Every off-season, every sports team evaluates How can we get better? 28 teams in the NFL are already making that decision today. What can we do to get better? How can we improve? What players can we get? What coaches can we get? The day after the World Series ends, the team that won the World Series meets in offices to start saying, how can we get better? 
How can we improve? Where can we grow? Brothers and sisters, that's the goal of the church as well. How can we excel still more? In God's grace, we're doing well at Grace Bible Church. Beyond numerical growth that we've experienced over the last couple of years, we've seen gospel conversions and we've seen baptisms and we've seen spiritual progress and spiritual maturity in our members. We've seen members in our body care well for one another. In spite of all that that we're seeing that is good, we're committed to excelling still more. We're not stopping. One way we can do that is how we pray for one another. Are you committed to excelling in prayer for one another? Pray for each other to grow in the knowledge and fellowship of God. Pray for each other to grow in the knowledge of salvation's hope. Pray for each other to grow in the knowledge of salvation's riches and in the knowledge of salvation's power. Oh, brothers and sisters, pray. Pray for one another so that you can grow in your excellent love for one another. Father, we come to the end of this message on prayer and we have to pray. We pray with gratitude for what you have done to provide for our church body, how you have sustained us, equipped us, strengthened us, matured us. And we pray that we might excel still more. Father, individually, might we might we pray more effectively? Might we pursue prayer more diligently? Might we pray more wisely? Certainly what we've talked about this morning are things that we could pray for ourselves and there would be much benefit in that. But might we still excel more in caring for one another by loving one another in praying for these things for one another. To grow in fellowship with you. To grow in the knowledge of the confident hope and expectation of salvation. To grow in the knowledge of the riches of salvation and what we have in you and who we are in you. And to grow in the knowledge of what salvation might do in us and through us. Father, might you be pleased 12 months from now to say you have excelled you have excelled still more you have prayed well for one another and the church has been profited by your excellent praying and your excellent loving and now father we transition to come to this table of communion We gather at this table to remember our Savior Jesus Christ and to have fellowship with Him, to commune with Him. And as we gather at this table, we anticipate the time when we will take these elements and eat with Him in His kingdom. And, O Father, may that day come soon. But as that day has not yet come today, though we understand it may yet come today, We prepare ourselves to eat this meal, to fellowship with Christ, and to commune with you. And just as we prepare ourselves to eat physical meals by the washing of our hands, so we come to this spiritual table to to wash our spiritual hearts and prepare ourselves to take these elements in a worthy manner, as Paul commanded us to do in 1 Corinthians 11. 
So as we prepare to confess our unconfessed sins, would you examine our hearts and reveal any sin that might still be impeding our fellowship with you? It may be that we have sinned with our words. We have been ungracious, unkind, and perhaps even vulgar and profane. Perhaps we have been angry with our words, creating offense and barriers to fellowship because we have desired to control, to manipulate, to harm others. Perhaps our words have been couched in fear and we have not trusted you and it has produced fearful, hostile, anxious, even angry words. Perhaps we have been careless and not considered how to build up others with our words. We have wasted and lost opportunities to express love and compassion and grace. It may be that we have sinned with our feet and our hands. We have engaged in activities that you have decreed to be ungodly and unfaithful for your people. Perhaps we have gone to places that defame your name. Perhaps we have engaged in ungodly business practices. Perhaps we have participated in presumptuous and greedy spending. Perhaps we have failed to serve when we had an opportunity and instead sought to be served. It may be that we have sinned with our eyes. We have coveted and desired things that were not for us. Perhaps we have coveted cars or houses or salaries or some other material good. Perhaps we have looked at and desired another's spouse. Perhaps we have looked and coveted fame and position and adulation from the world. Every ungodly act of covetousness reveals a disordered heart. We have wanted something more than we have wanted you and fellowship with you. And so now, Father, we pause for a few moments of silence so that we might individually examine ourselves and be examined by you so that we might confess our individual sins before you so that we might take these elements worthily. Father, whatever our sin, would you wash us with the blood of Christ and renew our fellowship with you and delight in you so that we may now take these elements freely, joyfully, and in full delight with you. And our Father, we thank you for the Savior who washes and takes away our sin, keeping us in everlasting fellowship with you. In his name we pray. Amen.